we actually look ahead from year to year and, and don't try very hard not to look ahead uh, beyond that because of where you're writing. You don't have any 20-year pension plans or anything of that sort and, and need a bit more faith and, and uh, brazenness, perhaps, I think, than, than if one has a steady job. <laughs> Hello everybody and welcome to another edition of Ear Read This, a podcast providing critical introductions to our favourite works of literature. Except when it doesn't, and looks instead at the biographies of our favourite authors. I'm Ash, your host, and today I'll be talking about the life of Sylvia Plath. This is only the first of several episodes on Plath, so be sure to subscribe in order to catch our upcoming introductions to some of her poems as well as her novel, The Bell Jar. For today's episode, I am joined by the author of two books on Plath, Carl Rollison. Carl is a prolific biographer whose subjects include Marilyn Monroe, Rebecca West, Norman Mailer, Susan Sontag and William Faulkner. His first biography of Plath, American Isis, reappraised the myth of Plath, calling her the Marilyn Monroe of modern literature. This was the first book of its kind to draw upon the newly opened Ted Hughes archive at the British Library. And in 2020, Carl published The Last Days of Sylvia Plath, this time being the first biographer working with access to the archive of Ruth Boitcher, who was Plath's therapist. Carl has two more books on Plath in the works, including Sylvia Plath, Day by Day, which will account for as many days as possible in the poet's life. Carl also has a terrific podcast of his own called A Life in Biography, in which he shares the backstories to some of his works, interviews fellow biographers, and provides fascinating insights into his trade. Carl and I will discuss all this and more in tomorrow's extended interview, and you can find links to his books and his podcast in the episode description box below, alongside our own podcast Patreon page, where you can access bonus content on a range of different tiers. A huge thank you to Carl for taking the time to talk to me, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Could I start by asking you about um, Plath's early life and where she grew up. Sure. Well, Sylvia Plath uh, liked to think of herself as being born by the sea. Mm. Uh, She was uh, born actually uh, in Boston, Massachusetts, lived in uh, what's called the Jamaica Plain section of Boston. She had grandparents, though, who had a cottage by the sea. She spent a lot of time there. The crucial events, really, of her very earliest years uh, well, the, it's the fact, really, of her father's death. Uh, he dies when she's eight years old. He was a professor, uh, actually rather renowned for a book on bumblebees, bees, really, beekeeping, which she, much later in life in England, took up herself. He had a very powerful impact on the household, even though he died when she was quite young. And she certainly had vivid memories of her father. One of the interesting things that uh, I've discovered, I'm working on a a new book on Sylvia Plath, which is going to devote a lot more time actually to her childhood, is until she gets well into her teens, after her father's death, she kept a diary beginning at the age of 12. He's not even mentioned in the diary. And yet so many people write about her, her father's having such an enormous impact on her. Mm. He did but it was a kind of delayed impact. There's no indication in her diaries, very early diaries uh, up through her 20s, that 
he was discussed in the home, or if he was, she simply didn't come in and didn't want to really think about it. So I think that was an important factor in her life. I think she was, and I'm very sensitive to this because my father died when I was 13. Hmm. I think when a parent dies that early, you're tremendously aware of mortality. Death is abstract for, uh, I think, young people, most people, unless they live in a home with a dying relative or a dying parent. Uh, and I think that really marked her, even though she didn't write about it in her early diaries. And the way you can see it, the way I can see it, and the way I relate to it and identify to it is her sense of time, that there were no minutes to waste. That comes from a sense of mortality of knowing that your time on this earth is limited. We all know that, but most of us, I think, choose not to think about it every day. Yeah. <laughs> and I think she did think about it every day. I'm not saying she thought about her father every day, but I think that was in the background, the idea that all this could disappear. The family life you have, the home life you have, could just vanish, could be gone. So I think that had a really powerful impact on her, both as a person and certainly as a poet as well. And that, that accounts for her writing from such a, a young age, not just the journal keeping, but, but the poetry and, and this working on herself. That's right. Her mother encouraged her to write. Hmm. Her mother read to her, as, as many parents certainly did at that time, and I think some still do today. The mother introduced her to the theater early. They went to see, for instance, a performance of The Tempest, which had a powerful impact on a very young Sylvia Plath. She wrote uh, poems for her father. Now, he dies when she's eight. So you see how early she's beginning to write yeah. and to think of herself as a writer. Uh, by the time uh, she's 11 or 12, she knows she's going to most likely have some kind of career as a writer. Uh, she's writing poetry, but she's very interested in journalism and she's very interested in current events. Uh, and has a sense of history. In 1944, she's playing a board game called Russia. Uh, I'm going to be writing about this. I, I didn't see this in any of the biographies of Sylvia Plath, including mine. Mm. But having gone through now meticulously all of her earliest diaries, she was aware of world events. Uh, soldiers came to her high school to talk about the war, their experiences in the war. Um, by the age of 18, she was reading uh, Jane Austen, um, the Brontes, uh, many American as well as English writers. Uh, she was reading children's books, but children's books which were about Poland in the Middle, in the Middle Ages. I mean, her, her, her sense of the world uh, by the time she graduates from high school and is going on to college is really quite extraordinary yeah. um, and is much, I think, intenser and broader in a way than any child growing up today, in spite of the fact that we have so many more, you know, sources, connections, yeah. televisions, connections, social media, and so on. I'd be very surprised if, if a, of a young woman of her age had, had that kind of grasp. What it reminds me of is what Samuel Johnson said. Uh, he, he said, to be a really, truly great writer, you have to be a great reader. But he went on to say, 
the, some of the most important writing, reading that a writer is ever going to do is going to be before the age of 18. And I think that's true with Sylvia Plath. Yeah. And that's why, although she only lived to be the age of 30, she packed in um, the amount of experience, you know, that other people living in their 60s and 70s haven't had. Yeah. It's often been said of her poetry that she, she absorbed the global events personally with much greater ease than other poets. Um, I'm thinking of, of thinking of um, poets wh where she compares herself to um, concentration camp inmates, but but also yes. I was thinking, was it during her stint at Mademoiselle where she you you write of it? I think it's in American Isis where she's really shocked by a friend's reaction to the Rosenbergs, ca quite callous but flippant and not very well observed yes. throwaway comment, yes. and it it really has a profound effect on on Plath. I'm reading a new biography of Ethel Rosenberg that I'm going to be mm. reviewing for the San Francisco Chronicle. And the book begins by quoting Sylvia Plath oh, in wow. the Bell Jar. Yeah. I was just I was just thrilled because what that shows you, people think of the Bell Jar as, oh, it's a book about suicide. It's about it's written by a woman who who committed suicide. It's it's sad, it's depressing. I have to tell your listeners, it's it it's none of those things. I mean, it's not that it doesn't deal with those subjects. But it deals with politics. Uh, yes, the, the Esther Greenwood in the Bell Jar is incensed because one of her uh, uh, contemporaries, young woman, has no idea who the Rosenbergs are. And somebody yeah. else that works as oh, good, they're being executed. She, it just drives her mad. He, this is a, Sylvia Plath was, a, was a, a sensibility, a person who felt history in her bones. To find another poet like her, you have to go to, say, the Greek poet Constantine Kavafi, or the Polish poet Zbigniew Herbert, uh, or the Irish poet Sheila Wingfield. Those are my top three in terms of uh, 20th century poets with that kind of sensibility. And people usually don't think of Sylvia Plath that way. They think of her in much smaller terms. And they should be thinking of Sylvia Plath as really a global poet. Uh, that's so interesting. I, I was I was going to ask you later on, but this is this has set it up too well not to ask you now. There seems to be some correlation between the the terms in which she was criticised for for comparing Nazism with with her own life as a poet, with um, some of your some of the things you've you've said about biography on your um, podcast, and when you were talking about your upcoming project the day by day of trying to account for every day this is this enormous um task <laughs> it made me it made me reflect on sylvia plath and and ted hughes e everyone says you know that the, the, they're so overexposed you, you hear sort of frida hughes saying we know so much about them their, their private lives have been exposed in in ways no other close contemporary poets or writer has but there seems to be this sort of fallacy that people want this ideal distance from from poets you know that like then that like there might be en enough biography like that's the yes. right amount in order to read the, read the <laughs> don't go any deeper do you think there is the a sort of sense that you know there's a tasteful way to do biography mm -hmm. i think that's true i think people uh, there it's certainly true in modern literary criticism especially in in academia uh, a desire to deal with the text deal with the page and not, not really look at what I would call the protean nature of great, great literature, which exists on the page, but in a sense 
off the page. It keeps reverberating. It keeps happening, so to speak. Um, years ago, uh, there was a, a professor, Queens College, part of Sydney University of New York, who was doing a biography of Marianne Moore. He gave a presentation and we all listened to him and in the room were academics, but also simply writers, some of whom happened to be biographers. And someone raised a, uh, a hand and, and said, you've talked about the archives and uh, Marianne Moore's uh, texts and so on, but you haven't said anything about the interviews you did. And he looked at it, he, he got, it was almost like there was a bad smell in the room. <laughs> and he said, interviews? They're so messy. Mm. And I think that's what irritates some people about biography is they have this picture of Ted Hughes or Sylvia Plath or name any other figure you want. And it's very fixed. The work is great. And who was this? Who is this biographer who comes along and opens up this can of worms and says, there's another way to read this stuff. Uh, I think that just, it seems to drive some people mad. There's a, there's a kind of both craving for biography, but also tremendous hostility toward biographers that I, I see again and again. Uh, and, uh, and a desire really to wipe us off the map. I mean, that sounds paranoid, I know. But, you know, I spent my life in academia. There aren't any departments of biography. Mm -hmm. There was one at Carleton College in the 1920s. Uh, and there was one at, it was Carleton and Dartmouth. And the interesting thing is they were started by the same man. <laughs> and when, when, once he died, it was bye-bye biography. He was, no he was no longer there. And for me, biography is a form of knowledge, uh, separable from history. Although obviously there's a lot of history in biography and there's a lot of biography in history. But if you, and I've done this in reviews, I call it biographology, where I talk about what is it exactly that the biography contributes to our understanding of the figure, whether it's a literary figure or not. So, for instance, there's a, there's a very good short biography of Woodrow Wilson by a, uh, a writer, uh, and there's another one by a historian. Uh, and it's the same Woodrow Wilson, but, you know, the way the writer treats w Wilson's uh, wife, his personal life, very different, very different approach. And some people love that. They love that different intimate approach and others are kind of offended. Isn't it, you know, Woodrow Wilson's foreign policy or, you know, his progressivism or something, you know, how dare you talk about his love life? You know, mm. for me, as with Samuel Johnson, I'm an 18th century biographer in this sense. I look at the whole person. Uh, I would never say, as one of my colleagues did once, who was writing a biography of the critic Dwight MacDonald, he mentioned very casually, the biographer mentioned that Dwight MacDonald had a couple affairs with his students. And he said, of course, I didn't write about that. And I'm thinking, you didn't write about that. <laughs> of course, if it was Carl Rollison, he'd be writing about that. Mm. And then there would be a reviewer who would say, oh, he's interested in the salacious stuff. No, I'm interested in the whole person. Perhaps people are unnerved if by uh, people who are long gone, continuing to grow or transform. I was thinking of the, there's a, the recent load of letters from, is it from T.S. Eliot or from his, from Emily Hale, his lover? Emily Hale, yes. Yeah, that has suddenly transformed the critical landscape of all kinds of poems. The, the book will have to be rewritten on where certain poems come from. 
You can yes, sort of understand yes, yes. why that's got literary scholars hot under the collar. <laughs> that's right. Um, so back to back to um, Plath's life. C- could you describe the the circumstances leading up to her first suicide attempt and, and what had changed? Because it was she's very young and yes, yeah, she's twenty. Yeah, twenty. Yeah, she, she's she's a she's driven. Mm. Um, she she goes to goes to school. Um, it's her heart's desire, Smith College. She does very well, but it's nerve wracking. She's writing letters and postcards to her mother every day, describing in meticulous detail the ups and downs of her life, the dates she has. It's it's um, it's overwhelming. And it's part of that, as I say, this sense of mortality that I got to get everything done. That's uh, always, to me, kind of the subtext. And so she's, by the time she goes to college, she's already published in Seventeen magazine. And then she becomes this intern at Mademoiselle magazine. Uh, and a lot of important American writers, women writers, have had these internships at, at Mademoiselle. No longer exists, but it did through the, at least the early 60s. And so she she gets this internship for a month in New York City. She's going to be one of, I think it's 20 young women who will have various jobs, uh, but they're also sort of fashion plates. They'll, they'll go to fashion shows and they'll dress in a certain way. And uh, if you see the pictures of Sylvia Platt, she's wearing a hat, which women still did in the, mm. in the 50s. It's much more rare today. And so she goes with both tremendous hope, but there's always anxiety. This is the point about ambitious people. If you're ambitious, you say to you, you may say to yourself, well, if I only get this internship at Mademoiselle, I will have fulfilled something. But as soon as you do that, you get your book published or you go to Mademoiselle or whatever it is, well, what's next? Uh, You're never content. A certain kind of ambitious person, ambitious person is never content, can never just say, well, I've done it, that's it. Ah, you know, now I can just relax. She can't relax. Well, imagine a Mademoiselle in the heart of Manhattan, glossy magazine, but also publishing some of the great contemporary writers. Plath was hoping to be sort of a literary editor for a month. But she's really given what's called the, uh, a managing editor's job, really, uh, which means all the business details. And she was good at business. But I mean, it's a 12, 18 hour a day job. Uh, and it is great experience. But it's not really what Plath wanted to do exactly in that, that month. And so that burden of carrying the magazine in a certain way and working with the the, uh, under an editor is just really tough on her. Uh, And there's an incident in the Bell Jar based on what she did do in New York in that month, in which at the end, she goes up to the the roof of the the, uh, Barbizon Hotel and throws her clothes out into the street, uh, leaving just a few items of apparel. It's like she has to she has to get rid of that month in some way, mm. but she goes home and she can't. Now, here's where the story gets interesting and where later books on Sylvia Plath are important. The earlier biographies, a lot of merit to them. They inspired the rest of us biographers, but there's sometimes this is inevitable in biography, especially early biography. You concentrate on the individual figure and what's happening to her. Well, the interesting thing is the same thing was happening to other women 
who had had that month. It was so heady. And then they go back to the Midwest or the South or wherever they're from. And it's a huge letdown. How, how to go on after this heady month in New York and setting all these expectations for yourself. So this is what happens to her. She gets home and she's depressed, although she doesn't really recognize the depression. Uh, she puts a good face on it for her mother and her friends, but she finds she can't write, that somehow New York has used up something in her that she can't quite fathom. And then she has, uh, that her mother realizes there's, there's a problem with Sylvia and uh, takes her for, for mental counseling therapy. And this was at a time in the early 50s when they were giving these electroshock treatments and sometimes in a most uh, brutal way. I mean, it's not easy to go through elect electroshock treatments in any case, but yeah. no tranquilizer. You know, it was, it was sort of like being electrocuted, which brings us back to the Rosenbergs. It's why Plath identifies with Ethel Rosenberg because it felt like electrocution. Well, these, these um, electroshock treatments do nothing for her. They drive her in a deeper depression. And uh, this is true at Sylvia Plath at 20 and at 30. She's watched a film, this was as a teenager, called The Snake Pit with Olivia de Havilland. And it shows mental institutions as really a kind of horror. You know, it's the last place in the world you want to be. Mm. And Plath is thinking about this, and she doesn't want to be a burden on her mother. Her mother has sacrificed everything to put Plath through college and her brother through college. And just mother's gotten ulcers. And I mean, just really very tough on the family. Um, Plath did not come from a, from a uh, wealthy family at all. She worked for everything. So Plath decides she has to end her life and she takes her mother's sleeping pills and goes underneath the house in a crawl space with a glass of water and all these pills from her mother's medicine cabinet and swallows them. She should have died. She threw up some of the capsules and um, was there uh, for three days. And there was a, uh, it became a big news story, uh, mm -hmm. not just locally uh, in the Boston area, but, but around the country, even some items in, in foreign newspapers about this young, you know, promising writer, uh, co-ed, etc. cetera. Uh, and finally, her, her brother, Warren, hears this groaning or moaning and just sort of intuitively uh, looks under the house. And he, her brother is really saves her, drags her out and and she, she uh, is taken to the hospital uh, and is saved, uh, but is still in this profound depression and goes, through, goes to McLean Hospital in Massachusetts. And is, that's a long story too. Spends some months there trying to recover, finally meets a female therapist, Ruth Boisher, who, who helps bring her out of uh, her, um, her really profound despair. Mm. And then, so, so how how long does it take for her to um, re recover enough to move on? Because after that, she 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 gets, goes to Cambridge on a Fulbright scholarship. Yes, she was she was almost finished with her Smith College. She had to go back for a final year. It was something like four to six months from the suicide to re-entering college, uh, it, it, to for her to to recover. 
and and then she seemed to have she continued to see the therapist mm. uh, and and they they became friends in a way. Um, she seemed to fully recover. Um, one of her um, contemporaries, Jane Anderson, who was also under treatment at McLean Hospital, uh, thought that Plath had made a mistake in refusing more extensive psychotherapy, that Plath thought she was cured, but Jane Anderson was very skeptical that that, that, was, that was the case. But certainly the indications really were when Plath graduates from Smith College and then she gets this Fulbright to Cambridge, that she has recovered, you know, that she's, she's well on her, her way, that she's, she's adjusted to this, uh, from recovering from this terrible depression. And what did she make of England and Cambridge? It was exhilarating for her. Mm. She welcomed the opportunity. One of the things that Cambridge did for her was, was uh, actually gave her a chance to study philosophy in depth. She, she had a remarkable um, tutor, uh, at Cambridge, who she very much identified with. And I think that gave her a kind of intellectual grounding um, that really served her well mm. uh, in her later poetry and writing. Um, I think that, that, that was important. It, it had always been her aim to go to England, to travel, to get beyond her own American environment, to, to see the world from all kinds of perspectives. I think that was really important to her. She hadn't, she didn't have enough money to do with the typical American undergraduate does like a junior year abroad. She had thought about that, but she, she had worked very hard in the summers to save money. Just, she had a scholarship, but she, there were still other expenses and things that, that uh, she just had just enough money to get by in college and, and no luxury. So that Fulbright was really important. And obviously, she, it's at Cambridge that she meets Ted Hughes. One of the things that I, I, I found myself almost like gasping at throughout your, your biography is that there are so many moments throughout their relationship where the, the, the details are so sensational, they, they sound made up. And especially <laughs> when you hear later of Ted Hughes quite firmly feeding into the melodrama and being every inch the sort of Heathcliff archetype that people take him to be um there, there are moments that you, you it feels like you know he has to have made that that's that's too poetic for it to be i was i was thinking of the just a, there was a moment i can't remember if it was the actual date they met or a date they met up again early on in their relationship and you you record uh sylvia recording in her journal um i think it was friday the 13th but then <laughs> and you just think, of, of course it was. Um, yes. Yeah. But their, their actual, their meeting has all of this kind of primal drama to it. Yes. Yes. She was looking in a sense for a Heathcliff and he, he, he was more at sea. Mm. Uh, he, he uh, was a poet and he, he already had a sense groupies, uh, certain males and females who followed him around. And yet he hadn't really, done much in terms of you know publication at all and i think what happened was uh, part of what happened anyway is that sylvia plath was looking for a superman uh, <laughs> and i mean that quite literally superman the radio version of superman was one of her favorite things to listen to on the radio she was looking for that kind of superman and hughes 
you know, there's this wonderful uh, scene in Playboy of the Western World, Sings Play, in which, you know, he's uh, the, the, um, the main character and is this really young boy who, who he thinks he's killed his father, or as he said, killed his dad. Mm. <laughs> and, and someone announces him as, you know, the Playboy of the Western World, that this is, this, you know, renowned. And he says, he says at one point, is it me? <laughs> you know, the, the, just, you know, and I think that was Ted Hughes. You know, mm. Sylvia Plath said, you're going to be a great poet. I'm going to send your articles to American newspapers and magazines. There's this poetry prize that Harper, Harper uh, magazine is, uh, Harper, the publisher is, is uh, offering. I'm going to enter you in that contest. I'm going to type your poems. She really took him in hand, you know. She took him in the hand the way that, say, uh, the colonel took Elvis Presley in hand, his agent. You know, he's almost her protege. But, you know, you're dealing with the late 50s and, and early 60s when, when women weren't regarded as, you know, proactive, as, you know, the main partner. And so she was really Ted Hughes's impresario. Uh, it, it's very difficult. I'm not saying he wouldn't have written great poetry without her, but I think it would have taken him years. I mean, she got him off to a really, really fa fast start so fast. In some ways, he didn't know what hit him. It was, it was really astonishing, this American go-getter, Sylvia Plath, you know, who had her own ambitions. She hadn't given up her ambitions at all. That's, that's what makes the story still important because, you know, it's not like she simply sublimated her own talent. She was still writing. She was still doing things. She would go through rough patches, writer's block, lots of other things, but she never gave up on her, you know, her goal of being a, a you know, a poet and a novelist. And uh, she wanted to be published in, you know, the glossy magazine. She wanted it all. You mentioned uh, write, write novels and poems. And one thing I, that was a surprise to me was to find out how serious she was about prose we, we think of both of them as poets and I think she said I'm going to garble the phrase but she said something like writing poetry gets in the way of the business of writing prose and she was really serious about writing novels but also um, as, a, as a way of making money she wanted to write pot boilers mm -hmm. and, and, mm -hmm. and detective dramas that's there right to be a, a huge difference between Hughes and Platt. Oh, yes. He had this very modernist idea of, you know, what was what fitted the dignity of a poet uh, mm -hmm. and, and her her interest in detective fiction or, or the novel in general. He had the sort of the typical 20th century poets snobbery about, you know, well, I guess if you can't be a great poet, maybe you could write a novel. Yeah. You know, if you can't write a novel, maybe you could be a journalist if you insist on yeah. writing. You know, and there's this, there's the, and then, you know, what it would be even worse is be a biographer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're really, you're really low on the literary ladder. <laughs> he certainly took against biographers later on, didn't he? <laughs> he sure did. Yeah, yeah, he did. So they, they briefly um, returned to America once they were, once they were a couple. And, and you mentioned that, uh, I can't remember if you said this about b your biographies in in general, but you you wanted to stress teaching in your in your books mm -hmm. uh, in your subjects. And Sylvia Plath has a, a takes up a teaching position when they they return. She teaches at Smith College. Yes. Yeah. So so what was that what was that like, and how did that come about? Because it doesn't seem like it's in her career path. Yeah. Well, 
if she hadn't met Ted Hughes, she might have been more of an academic poet. It's possible. Mm. Uh, although in all likelihood, not because once she got to Smith and she had this uh, professor, uh, Mary Ellen Chase, who, had, who was a novelist as well. And uh, Chase had been the one that helped her get the um, Fulbright Fellowship to Cambridge. And so Chase had been the one who sort of engineered a teaching position for uh, Plath at Smith too. And Plath was very grateful. She was uh, like a lot of beginning teachers, a little tentative, a little worried. She was also rather severe. The Cambridge experience, she set a very high standard for her students and they didn't all like that either. Uh, she wasn't particularly warm. She warmed up as the year went by. But the main problem was, for her, she was such a conscientious person. She couldn't do what we, what we call today multitasking. She couldn't just say, well, I'm going to devote so much time to my class and grading the papers and so on, and then I'm going to write my poetry. It, it turned out she just, it was very difficult for her to do anything creative while she was teaching. Uh, and so after a year, and really also under Ted Hughes's influence, he was teaching too, but he was doing it for the money. I think he was a fairly good teacher, actually, and did well. It reminds me of the joke I used to, I'm retired now, but I used to say about teaching is, the only thing I like better than teaching is not teaching. And I think that was, <laughs> that was, it was his attitude. He really enjoyed it. He got a lot out of it. He talked about it and so on. But it, it, you know, he lived in the world of mixed motivations where he was, he was doing it for the money. It didn't mean he wasn't a good teacher. He was, but he thought that, that the academic life, the life of the academic, the sinecure, the, the tenured position was really the death of literature. Uh, and so he, he very much, and Plath ha having struggled in her conscientious way with teaching and then combining that with what Ted Hughes was saying about teaching, she gave it up much to her mother's distress her mother thought boy these two couple have it made you know Ted Hughes mm. won this poetry award and he can be a writer in residence and Sylvia can have they could have a very comfy posh life uh, and they both decided uh, they they spent more time in the U.S. after she stopped teaching living in Boston and and doing some traveling uh, but they couldn't make it the way you you could in England at the time you could you could, especially Ted Hughes, he had this fabulous voice. It's as good as Dylan Thomas's voice as any poet reading his poetry. And he was much in demand at the BBC and made enough, not a huge living, but I mean, he made enough to survive as a poet. And Plath then also followed suit. And she really worked on her voice, became uh, mm. quite as good a reader of poetry as he did. And they couldn't do that in the U.S., we have things today like national public radio, but even there, you, you couldn't find a spot uh, and it didn't exist then. So that there, there was no, especially for poets, there, there was no way for them to, to do it. The curious thing is when they came to America, both Sylvia and Ted Hughes had high hopes. Sylvia thought the country, this huge American continent would really open uh, Ted Hughes up. And it did just the opposite. It closed him down. He, he didn't like America, really. He, he didn't like the, what he considered the softness of it. He didn't, you know, he said all the food is wrapped in cellophane uh, and the food is tasteless. And 
people have these moronic opinions. Uh, and he, he just, he liked Northampton, Massachusetts, where Smith was. Why? All the streets were kind of narrow and it reminded him of England. <laughs> and when he left England, he was talking about England as this rotting, decadent country that he was getting rid of. And he couldn't wait to get back. It, it seems like Sylvia sacrificed a lot going back. You write throughout American Isis about how in tune she was with the weather, you know, how, how, how uplifted she was if she could have sun on her skin and have a tan. And it seems like it must have taken a lot for her to wind up in Devon in the sort of middle of nowhere or relative nowhere compared to where they'd been before. I think that's true. She really loves cities. She did well in the country. She was a good gardener. You know, she did the country things very well. Actually, more, more, she was more interested in than Ted Hughes was. But she really thrived on the city. And she really thrived on the idea of a salon, of having a group of writers around her. Uh, and that's when, when they, they broke up. Uh, she, she was thinking that she could establish that kind of salon, but it was very difficult in London. I mean, she did know some writers, but it was very difficult to, she hadn't yet really established herself. She was writing the greatest poetry of her life, but much of it hadn't yet been published. She'd write to people like Stevie Smith, for example. She met Doris Lessing, who wasn't impressed with Plath, sorry, just this sort of gushing American. And I think that, that was Plath's response often when she felt intimidated. Uh, by someone like Lessing was to sort of gush and offer compliments and so on. And therefore, some people would think, well, she's not really a serious person. Uh, and they, Ted Hughes would often say to his friends that, you know, you, you got to put that aside. That's not really Sylvia. She's, she's a very serious person. So I think that lack of a support, a kind of network that Ted Hughes had, wow, you know, I mean, when she throws him out, he has no trouble going to London and sleeping at, you know, friends' houses. And it, it can be a woman, it can be a man, it can be friends of all kinds. He's got just a tremendous support system. And here she is, she's a single, single mother with two kids uh, and finds it, you know, very difficult to acclimate. You, you mentioned that she, she was she was published around this time, you know, quite close to the end of her life. Yes. We think of the sort of three, her three major texts as Ariel, the Colossus and the, and the Bell Jar. And was it around the move to Devon that the Colossus came out? That's right. Was her first major yes. publication. When that came out then, which, you know, was her, the only volume of poetry she published while she was alive. Right. How did the two of them measure up in, in terms of stature as poets? Were they on the same equal stature or was... Or was Ted Hughes or Sylvia Plath considered the, the sort of greater poet? At that point, Ted Hughes was certainly considered the greater poet. And the Colossus mm -hmm. got some very good reviews, including uh, one from El Alvarez, who became a real champion of her work and published her in the London Observer. Uh, but Hughes was the one who was really in demand. Uh, she was beginning to appear more and more on the BBC. She had no false sense of modesty. She knew that the poems that she that turned out to be Ariel, the book Ariel that was published, she knew that they were great poems, that they would make her name, they would make her reputation. Um, so in a sense, she knew that. She didn't need posterity uh, to confirm that. Uh, she knew it already. But there's no question when you look at her letters, you know, she's angry because 
it just looks all looks so easy for for Ted. Not, I don't mean the the writing so much, but just surviving the 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 breakup of a marriage. It was she found it so much harder on her. She couldn't go home. That is, she felt she couldn't go home. She couldn't admit she didn't want to admit defeat to her mother uh, that the marriage hadn't worked and she had to go home. She she didn't want to um, be a burden again to anybody. So I think. I think she felt increasingly isolated uh, and it does get back to the weather. It really does. Mm. It was, you know, one of the coldest winters on record. If you're not brought up with central heating, I suppose you don't see it this way, but if you're a comfort loving American, like Sylvia Plath was, and I went to England, I was 15 in 1963. I talk about this in, in the last days of Sylvia Plath. You, you are, you do feel cold. You, without central heat uh, heaters in the wall just don't do it for you <laughs> mm. and and, and uh, i didn't have what she had which was this tremendous um there's a passage when she's at cambridge this is and she's not feeling suicidal at all but she describes the cold in one of her letters and it's like one of those scenes in game of thrones where you know the cold is coming after you the icemen are after you you get that eerie kind of feeling and, you know, her pipes are breaking and not just hers, of course, everybody's pipes are breaking in London in that terrible winter. And she's just completely, you know, there is no salon right then. And it would have taken her years to build it up. I think she knew that. Uh, and just feeling incredibly isolated and alone. And I'm afraid that's where we'll have to leave it for today, but tune in again tomorrow to hear the final part of Plath's story, as recounted in Carl's book, The Last Days of Sylvia Plath. Once again, thank you to Carl Rollison for coming on the podcast. Check out the episode description box below for more information on all of his books. And until next time, happy reading. <laughs>